0: Question the important issues of today and try to find a sort of spiritual connection? Welcome to Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holliman as your host. Religion deals with the most fundamental issues humans face. There are arguments for and against the existence of God, where religion belongs in everyday life and a number of questions left unanswered. This is where it all gets discovered. Now, here is Father John Holliman.
1: Hello again, welcome back. Last week I had just begun to deal with the book of Revelation. And it's not only a fitting end to the Bible, it's a fitting wind-up of my series. Um, Because I think this this brings into focus exactly what we're trying to get at in in, uh, religion in the public sphere. First, we have to put the book of Revelation in perspective. Its purpose is primarily pastoral. John, whoever he was, is not to be confused with the author of the gospel or the letters of that name. But this John was attempting to warn his fellow Christians of the coming conflict with the Roman Empire. Perhaps he had experienced some of it already. But in any event, this was just the beginning. He clearly saw the fundamental difference between the mindset that governed the Roman Empire and the Christian faith. The church-state conflict could only escalate. The Jewish-Christian conflict that had preoccupied the earliest Christians, do Gentile converts have to conform to Jewish law, especially vis vis circumcision, now has faded into the background. The so-called Council of Jerusalem had entered that debate. Now, the first order of business was to prepare for persecution by Roman authorities as they began to realize that Christians were not a subset within the Jewish faith and therefore could enjoy the special freedoms accorded Jews by the empire. To accomplish his goal, John draws extensively on imagery and ideas found in the Old Testament, especially such writings as Ezekiel, Isaiah, Zachariah, Daniel, Exodus, and a few non-canonical sources such as the Book of Enoch. He saw the urgency of preparing his fellow Christians spiritually for the coming conflict, which he viewed as being fundamentally spiritual in nature. Clearly, John represents the apocalyptic view of history, which is very pessimistic about the redeemability of people and social mores of the contemporary climate. Things are so bad that they have to be replaced entirely by a new world, purged of the hopelessly sinful nature of the old. This stands in contrast to the prevailing attitude of most Old Testament prophets, whose principal motive was to reform the behavior of people, especially the people of God. Redemption in this world was felt to be possible." They didn't need a completely new world. Um, the nature of John's experience on the island of Patmos, um, I have a, my own personal theory about that. Too many people today he'd probably read, try to read his book, he must have been high on peyote or something. But I, in fact, I think it's a well thought out book. And I would like to uh, compare it to uh, the composer Handel when he came to write The Messiah, his oratorio. Um, He was inspired. He used some music he'd already written elsewhere. But he put it together in a completely different way. And He locked himself in his room, and his servant would come to bring meals and leave them on a pedestal outside the door. And when he came back, he'd pick up the dirty dishes and carry them to the kitchen. But um, Handel was so embroiled in what he was doing, that quite often the food would still be there when the servant came back to get it. Um, and he would be up to all hours of the night composing and his result was that he composed the whole oratorio in some record two week time Um, I get the feeling this is purely conjecture on my part that the author of the book of Revelation was something like that Uh, He was intensely embroiled in in what he was doing. And there's an urgency about it. He had to get out. uh, The message to his fellow Christians. Um, It's a poetic attempt to express the inexpressible, which is the basic job of poetry anyway. Like any prophet or mystic, he has a role to play in translating an experience of the ineffable into poetic imagery. Now, as I have said, the purpose of the book is primarily pastoral. He was a practical visionary who sought to warn the Christian community of dangers it was facing. Yet he also wanted to reassure them with his own unshakable confidence in God. His object was not to obscure, but to enlighten his intended readers who would have been immersed in the same apocalyptic imagery that he was. However, the difficulty of this symbolism accomplished two things. It required patient study by his readers. They would have to pay careful attention and take his message seriously. And secondly, it camouflaged the book's seditious message in the event it fell into the wrong hands. Most Roman officials looking at this thing would say, the guy's nuts. Um, his message has two aspects. The essential conflict between Christianity, and that's essential is the key word there. Um, this conflict is not avoidable. It is imp- it's imperative. Conflict between Christianity and the powers of this world, which uh, is- issues from Um, pride, wealth, and glory, uh, the pursuit of those things. Secondly, it is necessary for Christians to remain faithful to their calling despite temptation and persecution. In his particular situation, this meant conflict between church and state. The custom of giving divine attributes to the Roman emperor had begun with Augustus. It was increasingly being encouraged as a means of providing a moral and religious basis for patriotism and for unifying the empire. Um, on the very practical level, in, in any Roman city, you would have um, on the side of buildings or street corners, uh, little stone shrines in which uh, was maintained some charcoal lit. And a container for 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 um, incense, and most of the citizens would simply go up, be a, an image of the emperor usually. Usually, um, take a pinch of incense and throw it on the coals, and as the smoke went up, that was sort of for the Roman citizen equivalent to saluting the flag. Um, the emperor was um, what held the Roman empire together. And in fact, you, you if you considered him a divinity, then this was a way of saying a prayer to the emperor for whatever you needed. Um, and the Christians refused to do that because it was acknowledging the emperor as being um, a god. And for the average Roman who was very tolerant of all kinds of religions within the empire, uh, this just made no sense. Um, It called into question one's loyalty to the empire. And it made one suspicious from the outgo. The first official attempt to enforce the cult of emperor worship came during the latter part of the reign of Domitian, who reigned from 81 to 96 AD. Now, John himself may have suffered already at the hands of Roman officials. Seeing what was at stake before the authorities did, he was anticipating the crisis facing the church and trying to prepare his fellow Christians for it. Although Rome was one of the greatest, if not the greatest, empires created by human beings, John was not impressed. He only saw the spiritual and moral evils which corrupted it to the core and made it unredeemable and thus under God's judgment. For John, that judgment was imminent and about to break upon the world. His fundamental theme was the essential role of martyrs. A m- martyr it's a Greek word meaning witness. And the martyrs were those who witnessed to the faith by giving the ultimate, their life for their faith. Um, but he saw this role as essential in bringing about the final outpouring of God's wrath. And one is reminded of. Um, Tertullian's remark that uh, the church is built on the blood of her martyrs. Despite appearances to the contrary, God is in control, says John, and those who remain faithful will be vindicated soon. Now what is the abiding value of the book? Although John's anticipation proved wrong in the literal sense, the second coming did not, was not around the corner. Um, he was prophetic and that the principles he laid down bare have significance for all ages. And that's where we come in to tie into uh, my topic of religious faith in the public square. His suspicion of worldly power was complemented by a realistic assessment of the church. It was small, it was weak, it was distracted. And susceptible to the very evils he was warning about, namely the lack of charity, um, compromising with false teachings, and laxity towards immorality, which characterized pagan society. Sounds like we're rapidly becoming pagan all over again. Um, however, his visionary experience provided him and us with an important contribution to religious thought. His absolute confidence that victory would be won by the church despite her sufferings, but only by God's power, not its own. The evil that threatened the early church is still with us, albeit in different forms, but such evil is judged eternally. And thus is something Christians of any age need to soberly contemplate. And as I said last week, this book is structured around the number seven. Which for Jews was a symbol of divine perfection, reflecting the seven days of creation. Quite often you have things that add up to seven in this book. You have four horsemen and three woes of the eagle, as one example. Again, he uses Daniel's meditation, chapter nine of the book of Daniel, on Jeremiah's promise that 70 years would bring about the restoration of Zion. Um, when, Daniel, when Jeremiah wrote that, um, the people of, of uh, Palestine had been carried off in exile to ba- Babylon. To Babylon. Um, and Jeremiah said, it would take 70 years Before people will be allowed to come home again, and he was pretty close to right that number. Um, Not only does John use these figures, he also subscribes to the notion that history is steadily building toward a climax. Now, numerology was very prominent in ancient thought. Pythagoras and Plato um, indulged in numerology. There's something, something more to numbers than just a number. Um, I'm going to take some verse-by-verse verse exposition here to give you an idea. Um, I won't do this for the whole book. Just in the beginning, so that you can get an idea of how it is that John is conveying this message. Um, In the first three verses of the chapter one, we have the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, to show his servants what must happen soon. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who gives witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ by reporting what he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud, and blessed are those who listen to this prophetic message, and heed what is written in it, for the appointed time is near. Um, It's a trumpet call to a new resolution. And furthermore, it makes point that Christ still speaks to his servants. It includes the first of seven blessings throughout the book. Since time is short, John's main purpose is to warn and fortify his readers, not satisfy their curiosity. Now, in the prologue, which follows in verse 4, it begins with a greeting. John to the seven churches in Asia. Um, remember, seven is the number for perfection. And um, so he's not just writing to these seven churches. He's writing to all churches. And his, uh, his readers of that day and time would have understood that. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, who has made us into a kingdom, priest for his God and father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Um, This is an open letter to all believers. Grace is the requisite of peace in the believer's heart. Now, peace doesn't mean what we commonly mean by it. Uh, In scripture, peace is not just a negative thing, the absence of uh, conflict. It is a positive thing of being in touch with the divine And um, he's he's sending that divine peace upon them so that they may be um, calm about it all. Typically, he avoids the holy name, which is a Jewish uh, thing. The holy name of God given to Moses at the burning bush. And initially, uh, during the Reformation, the translators were putting the scriptures into whatever language. Um, It was thought that the the name given to Moses at the burning bush was Jehovah. But scripture scholars today are convinced that the name was Yahweh, because in ancient Languages, they often omitted putting vowels in letter, in words. You had to know what the vowel was. Like in our own time, we, have received, if we see a sign that says HWY 90. We know it's talking about a highway, a number of a highway. But um, several thousand years from now, people may not understand what we meant by HWY. That's what there was confusion between Jehovah and Yahweh. Well, we've got a break coming up here, and I'll um, be back to you shortly.
0: It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's defendingthecatholicfaith.com. Are you satisfied with your life? Do you know that more should be possible? Listen for the Access Consciousness Radio Show with the creators of Access, Gary Douglas and Dr. Dane here. Our program offers pragmatic tools to change things in your life that you haven't been able to change until now. What if all of life could come to you with ease, joy, and glory? Tune in to Access Consciousness Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. Who are you, really? Are you the person you want to be, or are you the person that others want you to be? Think about that. We don't always recognize our gifts and potential because we stick to old methods of being and do what others in our lives tell us. It's time to break through. Listen for Rediscovering the Magic of Being with Marja. Each program connects you back to whom you were meant to be every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in. Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. tuned into religious faith and the public square with father john holliman to reach the program today please call 1-888-346-9141 that's 1-888-346-9141 you may also send an email to defendingcatholicfaith at gmail.com now back to religious faith and the public square
1: Continuing with the first chapter of the book of Revelation, we come to the first vision. He writes, I, John, your brother, who share with you the distress, um, the persecution, the kingdom and the endurance we have in Jesus, found myself on an island called Patmos, which is still there by the same name. And. Um, because I claimed God's word and gave testimony to Jesus. I was caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a voice as loud as the trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me, and when I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, wearing an ankle-length robe with a gold sash around his chest. The hair of his head was as white as white wool or snow, and his eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet were like polished brass refined in the furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing water. In his right hand, he held seven stars. A sharp two-edged sword came out of his mouth, and his face shone like the sun at its uprightness. Now, this sounds like something for a special effects studio to conjure up, but he's, he's transmitting a very definite message here. Um throne for John is the invariable symbol for ultimate power and authority in the universe. The seven spirits are the living, ultimate um, li- living representatives, not just symbols of divine majesty, power, and perfection. In Other words, blessings are imparted from them not just through them. First beginning of verse five is a creedal formula. The Messiah is an unswerving martyr. Uh, In other words, a faithful witness. He is risen because he's firstborn, and more powerful than earthly monarchs. Verses five and six, It's a hymn of praise in which speaks of Christ's unbounded love. Verses 7 and 8, followed by dread of the inevitable judgment that attends his presence. The sovereignty of God admits to no compromise and judgment must fall on evildoers. Now in verse 9, he goes into the trance. Um, I, John, your brother... And we get the description of this character. Um, The lampstands imply that Christ is with his churches. These seven lampstands send for the seven churches. In other words, they shine his light on a darkened world. And secondly, Christian churches now embody what has been only a symbol for the Jews. They are the new Israel, inheritors of the promises to Abraham. In verses 13 to 16, um, is a good example of the use of concrete imagery to express abstract notions. And this has to be one of the biggest barriers to understanding um, Scripture, both Old and New Testament. In that day and time, they did not think in abstractions. A good example would be geometry. The Egyptians invented geometry so they could build their pyramids and other monuments. But it was purely applied math, it was uh, a practical thing to get something done. But the Greeks came along, like Pythagoras, and abstracted from that to come up with theorems. if you stop to think about it, in the plain geometry of Pythagoras, um, a point is defined as something without dimension. Are we ever, are we ever ever capable in this material world of uh, imagining something without dimension? Well, imagining it, perhaps, but not experiencing it. A line is something that extends infinitely in all both directions. Have we ever experienced anything like that? No. Um, So the, the very definitions that Pythagoras gives us is abstractions, mental creations. They just don't exist in this material world. And yet it has enabled us to do amazing things with it. Um... So, when John needs to express something that we would uh, abstract, and call transcendent or imminent, those are those are abstractions. Um, he has to use this concrete imagery, um, which carries with it um, meanings which only people who are on the inside would understand. Um, Christ is in the midst of the lampstands. In other words, the churches are his deepest concern. The robe and the golden girdle are emblems of royal dignity. White hair betrays wisdom. The fiery eyes mean that he is all-seeing, he who searches the inmost heart. The feet like bronze is the power to crush and destroy evil. The two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth is the word of God, specifically the gospel, which is like a two-edged sword in that, um, as the old saying goes, the word of God uh, comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. Um, so he's just saying that um, this figure with uh, the seven uh, the two-edged swords coming out of his mouth is simply saying he's, he's a person who preaches the gospel. His shining face is like the dazzling splendor of a heavenly body. The seven stars he holds in his hand Angels are angels or the souls of the seven churches. The right-hand guards, protects, reassures. This implies that Christ affords these things to his churches. There's a difference here from Daniel. Here, the Son of Man is given attributes previously associated only with God. In the book of Daniel, that's not the case. Son of Man is just... A- Another human being. When I caught sight of him, I fell down at his feet as though dead. He touched me with his right hand and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the one who lives. Once I was dead, but now I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys to death and the underworld. Again, reassurance. Also, uh, there's a liberation from the fear of death. Verses 19 to 20. Write down, therefore, what you have seen and what is happening. And you, what will happen afterwards. This is the secret meaning of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." So there he gives a clue to exactly what he's talking about. Um, Since the lampstands represent earthly communities, the angels are just another aspect of their existence. the Churches are more than sociological institutions, Temporal organizations. They have a divine character or soul which is under Christ's guidance and protection. Now we get to the letters, actual letters of the seven churches. Whoever has ears ought to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the church at Sardis, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write this. The one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. I know your works, that you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen what is left, which is going to die, for I have not found your work complete in the sight of my God. Remember then how you accepted and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not watchful, I will come like a thief. You will never know at what hour I will come upon you. However, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me dressed in white because they are worthy. Um. (laughs) The whole book of Revelation resembles a prophetic and cyclical to all Christian churches, which fall into three basic categories bad, good, and mixed reviews. <clears throat> and here, the bad examples are Ephesus and Laodicea, examples of good examples of successful congregations, Smyrna and Philadelphia. And mixed reviews can go to Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis, which we've just read here. John considers tolerance of evildoers an offense against offenders because it hardens repentance and an offense against the church because it it might reduce abhorrence of the evil itself by tolerating um, evildoers. Now to the church in Ephesus, beginning of chapter 2, Um angel of the church in Philadelphia write this. The Holy One, the true, who holds the key of David, who opens and no one shall close, who closes no one shall open, says this. I know your works. Behold, I have left an open door before you, which no one can close. You have limited strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the assembly of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying, Behold, I will make them come and fall prostrate at your feet, and they will realize that I love you, because you have kept my message of endurance. I will keep you safe in the time of trial that is going to come to the whole world to test inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, and and that no one may take your crown." The victory I will make into a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never leave it again. On him I will inscribe the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, as well as my new name. Whoever has ears ought to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then he goes on to talk about Laodicea. Um, Ephesus is named first because the warning it gives is of supreme importance. Churches must guard against losing the essential qualities of their faith, namely love and a fervent, unpresuming devotion. The dependency upon Christ for continued existence and hope for future protection goes without saying. The good aspects of their community—they keep vigilance over their purity and patient endurance in face of hostility. The Nicolaitans—we don't know who they are. Um, possibly a reference to. Nicholas of Antioch in the book of Acts, chapter 6, verse 5. They seem to have been primitive Gnostics who had become antinomian through attempt for material things. Um, if you've got this secret knowledge, um, in, in the world, the material world, is, is hopelessly evil, um, you're not going to be bound by any laws or rules. That, the material world comes up with. That's what he means by antinomian. Um, They have few few scruples about accommodation to pagan mores. At issue is church versus the world, plus the Christian path between legalism with its pharisaical insistence on rules and antinomianism with its reliance on a devoted spirit directly inspired by God which needs no rules. Uh, we've got another break here, so I'll be back shortly.
0: It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories, from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call, and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more, or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com.
1: The White House doctor makes house calls.
0: It's time to transform your life. Start by tuning in to The Glenise Show with Glenice Hughes. Glenise combines business, relationships, wealth, life, and a whole lot of magic to create abundance and prosperity in every part of your life. It's all done through straight and often frank discussions in the best way that Glenise knows how. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Master your life with The Glenise Show. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holliman. To reach the program today, please call one 346 9141 That's one 346 9141 You may also send an email to Faith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square.
1: Beginning at Chapter 2, of the book of Revelation, um, is directed at the church of Ephesus. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the seven gold lampstands says this, I know your works, your labor, your endurance, that you cannot tolerate the wicked. You have tested those who call themselves apostles but are not and discovered that they are imposters. Moreover, you have endurance and have suffered for my name, and you have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have lost the love you had at first. Realize how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But you have this in your favor. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears to hear, ought to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the victor, I will give the light, the right to eat from the tree of life that is in the garden of God. Again, referring back to the Garden of Eden. Um, they have most of their community have vigilance of their purity and patient endurance in the face of hostility. Um, We already talked about the Nicolaitans and what they may have been referring to there. Um, In verse 4, he talks of a laudable vigilance which has become preoccupation. The result has been inquisition and censoriousness. We're in love with its forbearance and true trust is lost. Without love, one has nothing. And that's reminiscent of St. Paul himself. Mistrust, quarrelsomeness, malice lead to spiritual death. The remedy for all of this is to remember, to repent, and to act. Sentimentality is not enough. They must change your conduct and revert to former life of harmony. But this does not mean an undiscriminating amiability. Their intolerance of wicked men is good. Love of brethren must not reduce hatred or falsity, idolatry or immoral behavior. Now, verse 7 is a typical... Injunction. Whoever has ears to hear ought to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the victor, I will give the right to eat from the true life, tree of life in the garden of God. Um, To the church in Smyrna, I won't bother to stop and quote it. Here we have Christians living under both persecution and poverty. The one leads to eternal life and the other to the riches of faith. The unseen world was more real to them than the material hardships of the present. Hostility and excommunication by the Jews uh, had exposed the Christians to the imperial authorities. This meant that they had no legal rights. John's point, Christians are the real Jews, the new Israel, an inheritance of the promises to Abraham. A Jew is anyone who gives allegiance to the true Messiah. In verse 10, John does not minimize their peril. They must be tested. The devil has the power behind their persecutors, Gentile and Jew. The 10 days means that the the duration is short and thus bearable. Their ordeal is also their opportunity, wherein they may gain the conqueror's reward. In verse 11, he talks about the second death. The victor shall not be harmed by the second death. Well, that refers to the judgment. Um, first death is obviously the physical um, passing away but um, then comes the judgment and presumably if you don't measure up um, your existence your um, existence ceases in any form um at that point. The association of the underworld with fire and brimstone is easy enough to come by. Um, The Mediterranean world then, as now, was full of volcanoes. When you bury people, you put them in the ground if you're not going to cremate them. And lava and smoke come from from under the ground um, when the eruption occurs. And so it's a natural kind of assumption that where the dead go is is going to be fire and brimstone. That idea became associated with uh, punishment. Um, You have to remember though that it's this Hell is not, I'm convinced, a place. It's a spiritual condition which we can be in hell on this side of the grave. I have to wait for the other side of the grave. Um, It's a spiritual condition of being completely in varying stages of self-absorption. The more conceited we become, the more um, we feel that we don't need other people, um, that we can do things all by ourselves, is the essence of, of hell, which is being without God, being without love. And the worst thing punishment you can give to a human being is um, isolated isolation. And I think being in hell is becoming self-centered to the point where you cut yourself off from everybody else, including God. And I've known some people like that, who blame everything on everybody else. Everything's gone wrong in their life. It's not their doing, somebody else is doing. And as a result, they become very angry and bitter people. Now, the church in Smyrna, here we have Christians living under both persecution and poverty, the one leading to eternal life the other to the riches of faith. And the reference to the second death is eternal damnation on the day of final judgment. Now, the church at Pergamum is the opposite of the Ephesians. Here, those who compromise the purity of the faith are too loosely tolerated. The two edged sword is the word of God, which proclaims a message both of judgment and of joy. But those who ignore are lightly set it aside be they individuals or nations, it is a threat for the faithful reassurance of God's power and protection. It makes a reference to Satan's throne. Pergamum was a center of cults and the imperial cult of Esculapius, the god of healing, with the serpent as its symbol, which doctors use to this day. And Zeus, whose great temple dominated the city from the Acropolis, being the major ones. Um, Which deifies Caesar. And that's probably what he's referring to there by Satan's throne. Now, in verse 14, yet I have a few things against you. You have some people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who instructed Balak to put a stumbling block before the Israelites. This was back during the Exodus. To eat food sacrificed to idols and to play the harlot. Now, food sacrificed to idols. Um, normally, if you brought an animal to the temple for sacrifice, um, the pagan priests were the butchers of their day. Literally, they would take the animal and cut it up, and certain portions were kept for themselves as their pay for doing this. Usually the parts that you didn't want like the viscera would be put on the altar to be burned and then the rest uh, what's left over after the cuts would come back to you you could take it home and cook it. Um, only the holocaust the whole birth, the entire animal was cremated which was pretty rare. Um <coughs> His reference to Balaam is in the book of Numbers, chapter 25. His reputation had suffered because of the verses following the story, which relate the defection of the Israelites to the local fertility cult of Baal. He was blamed as instigator of this defection, so he was seen as the type of all corrupt teachers who lead people into idolatry and sensualism, at least for John. Now, this is because there's an equation here that John takes as without question. Pagan beliefs and immoral practices go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. And that's because worship of Baal was fertility religion. And there was something called sacred prostitutes in the temple who copulated with the priests, thereby um, sort of sympathetic magic, the deity would um, then send rain for the crops, um, elevating sex to the level of worship. Um, So it's understandable how John could equate pagan beliefs with immoral practices. The responsibility of the whole church is for the moral welfare of individuals. Now here, repentance means disciplining the deluded in hope of averting their destruction. Um, There's a reference made to a white stone. It is commonly considered a charm and a sign of admission to feasts. Now, it's in verse 17... He got to give a white amulet upon which is inscribed a new name, which no one knows except the one who receives it. Well, it looks like we're coming to the end of, end of today's thing. Um, I hope I'm beginning to see how this relevant this is to what's going on right now. Um, human nature hasn't changed much. And it would have to admit, be admitted that. Um, country is no longer Christian in the sense that it has traditionally been. Um, Obama was probably right on that one. Um, Secularism, atheism, um, is bringing us right back to the sophist philosophers of ancient Greece who said man is the measure of all things and we don't need all this religious stuff. Um, I'll elaborate on that when I come back next week and hope you have a good week God bless
0: Thank you for tuning in to Religious Faith and The Public Square Please join Father John Holliman again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hope you have a very good week